heard enough spiritual truth already to overwhelm our hearts and hopefully induce worship within your heart. And there's still more to come. What a chapter. Paul is elaborating on the fact that though we were dead in sin, we were spiritually dead, lifeless, God came to the rescue. God made us alive. God did this. You don't see yourself there. You see God. This is God doing the work. Dead people don't give themselves light, do they? If you go to a dead person and tell him to come with you to a party, he's not going to get up. He needs resurrection. And the good news is God raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life. He brings us into union with Christ by grace through faith, and then He grafts us into His covenant people so that we become the Israel of God, the people of God, those who receive the covenant promises. I don't know about you, but that's enough to lead me to worship. So let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Thank Him for all we've heard and then open up His Word again this morning. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are so grateful for all that we have heard this morning. We are so grateful for this chapter that we just read here in Ephesians chapter 2. And though we were once dead in our sin, our hearts were hardened in unbelief, we were the enemies of God, we were helpless and hopeless, yet You are the one who acted, You are the one in grace who initiated our salvation, and while we were dead in sin, You made us alive with Christ. You've seated us with Him in the heavenlies. We can't even comprehend that. But there is a sense, positionally, in which we are, even now, this morning, seated in the heavenlies. That's where our Savior is. And since He's our representative, since our life is hidden with Him in God, that's positionally where we are as well. And we come this morning together as a church to join in with all of the saints and angels throughout the universe, to join with the universal church, and to worship our Lord and our Savior together for all that You are and all that You have done. We thank You, Lord, that though we were once pagan Gentiles, now we're spiritually Jews. Though we were once excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Now we've been grafted into Israel and now have become the Israel of God. Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Though we were once strangers to the covenants of promise, now we are inheritors of the covenants of promise. Though we were once cut off from Christ, now we are in union with Christ. You have abolished the enmity between Jew and Gentile. You've gotten rid of the ceremonial law and you have now joined us together in one body, one church, one people, a unified people who will glorify You together. We are so grateful for all that You've done, Lord. And now that as we come to open up the Scripture and to continue our study of Your Word, we pray for help, we pray for understanding, we pray for wisdom, and we pray that You would plant Your Word in our heart that it might produce fruit in our life for the praise of Your name. Amen. Well, all right, if you have your copy of the Scriptures, please turn with me in the inspired and errant authoritative Word of God to 1 John chapter 5, one final time, to 1 John chapter 5, as today we put a wrap on our study of this wonderful epistle. And for this morning, we come again to the text that has dominated our attention for several weeks now, that is, verses 13 through 21. 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. 
It's always a bittersweet moment when we finish a book. It's bitter because after nearly a year of diving deep into a particular portion of Scripture and mining its truths, it's sad to come to the end of such a wonderful study. It's like saying goodbye to a dear friend, as it were. And yet at the same time, it's sweet because that means we will soon begin the study of another book. The Bible is like a vast ocean that never runs dry. It's like a treasury of truth that just never ends. A deep well of which we could never reach the bottom. A feast for our souls that will never be finished. And so what a bittersweet day. This morning, 1 John 5, next week, a new book. By now you know that John wrote this letter from Ephesus to the churches of Asia Minor, and he wrote the letter to refute the Gnostic heretics and to provide these believers with a series of tests, tests that if passed, provide Christians with assurance of salvation. That's been John's theme. John's theme has been Christian assurance. We can know we are saved. We can know we are headed for heaven. We can know that God has delivered us from our sin and the future judgment. That is John's theme. He's driven home that theme for five chapters now. And now he comes to the very end here, and he brings it all to a fitting close. This is John's conclusion. Let's read the passage together one more time. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13. John writes, These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. As I've told you before, the key word there is the word know. The word know. It's used over 30 times throughout the letter and it's used seven times alone in these final nine verses. This is a passage that deals with things that we can know. A text that deals with certainty, with absolute truth, with what I call Christian absolutes. Christian absolutes. The world today tells us that there is no truth. Or better yet, each person can determine his or her own truth. Truth is subjective. Truth is relative. However, Scripture tells us that there is absolute truth. 
There is objective truth. Truth that obligates belief in every person. Truth that is binding upon everyone. Truth that every human being must adhere to. And God has revealed that truth. We can know the truth because God has revealed it to us in His Holy Word, in Holy Scripture. In the more sure Word of God, Peter calls it. Peter said even more sure than his own personal experience was the more sure prophetic Word, the Word of God, the inerrant Scripture. So as believers then, we possess absolute truth. And in this passage, John lists five absolute truths in particular that we can be certain about. Five Christian absolutes that we can know with certainty. We've already considered the first three, and this morning we'll finally finish our study by looking at the final two. The first absolute that we saw several weeks ago, you should remember, was eternal life. We can know that we have eternal life. We saw that in verse 13. Those who examine themselves in light of the three tests of 1 John, the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test, and pass those tests, they can know with certainty that they have eternal life. The second absolute that we saw was answered prayer. Answered prayer. We saw that in verses 14 and 15. Assurance of salvation gives us confidence to go before God. It gives us boldness at the throne of grace. And those who pray according to God's will can be confident that He hears them and that He answers them. And then there was the third absolute, which we looked at last week. And that was eternal security. Eternal security. We can know that God keeps us. John says there is a sin that leads to death. That is, the full and final rejection of Christ, total apostasy, the sin that ends in certain spiritual and eternal death. But John says the believer can't commit that. God keeps him from that. God preserves him. God holds the believer fast. And so we can be certain then about eternal life, about answered prayer, and about eternal security. But all of that now brings us to a fourth absolute this morning. Absolute number four. God's family. God's family. We can know that we belong to God. Look at verse 19. John says, We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that we are of God. Here's another thing that as a Christian you can know with certainty. Here's another absolute truth that you can be confident about. You can be confident that you as a believer belong to God. That is to say, we are in the family of God. We are the children of God. We have been adopted by God, born of God. We possess the life of God, the nature of God, the seed of God. And therefore, we belong to Him. We are His. We are of God. The word of there, the Greek preposition ek, it means out from among or out of. The word here indicates that the life that we possess as Christians is divine life. 
It comes from God. It comes out from Him. He is the source of our life. The nature that we now possess comes from God. As Christians, our identity is not what it once was, is it? It's not what we once were. We are now bound up in who we are in Christ. Our identity is wrapped up in our relationship with God. Back in chapter 3, verse 9, John said that His seed abides in us. That is His nature, His life. Back in chapter 3, verse 1, John made a staggering statement. He said, See how great of a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. We are the children of God. We belong to Him. We are from Him. We are His. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God is my Father. Some of us grew up without good fathers. Thankfully, God did give me a good father, and He's still living, and it's been a means of grace to me. But many people grow up with very poor fathers. But what a wonderful reality to know that God becomes your Father in Christ. And unlike human fathers, who are often evil and corrupt, the Heavenly Father will never leave nor forsake His people. He loves us. And because of His love for us, He is the one who keeps us. Going back to verse 18, John says He keeps us. This is why. Because we belong to Him. Because we are His children. Any good father wants to protect his children, doesn't he? And God is the omnipotent, sovereign, gracious Father and ruler of the universe, is not only willing, but able to protect His people. He guards us. He protects us from the evil one. And therefore, the evil one does not touch us, John said back in verse 18. He can't destroy us. He can't sift us like wheat. He can tempt you, He can influence you, He can discourage you, but He can never bring you to destruction, deception, and damnation because God keeps you if you are a believer. And all of it is because we belong to God. John made that same point basically back in chapter 4, verse 4. There he made this familiar statement. You are from God, little children and have overcome them, because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. It's a wonderful truth. We belong to God. God Himself dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. The one in us is greater than the one in the world. And because of all of that, we are kept from deception. We overcome false teachers and Satan and the world and their deception because we belong to God. So we are of God. But that's not the case for everyone, is it? Can everyone say they belong to God? We know the answer to that. This is true for believers, but it's not true for unbelievers. And John makes that clear in the second half of verse 19. Not only do we know that we are of God, but we also know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
This is a, an exhaustive statement, comprehensive statement, as indicated by the word whole here. A Greek word could mean complete or entire or total. The totality of the world lies in the power of the evil one. The word world here, by the way, you should know this word by now. It's a familiar word to us. It's the Greek word cosmos. cosmos. And as I've told you before, it just refers to an ordered system. It's the basic meaning of the word. It's where we get the English word cosmos from. The cosmos, the universe, is an ordered system. That's what the word conveys. And here, it refers to the system of evil that is within the world and that is ruled by sin and Satan. The system of evil in the world ruled by sin and Satan. And therefore, it encompasses all of those who are in that system. That is, all unbelievers, all non-Christians. Every person outside of Christ is bound up in the world system and therefore lies under the power of the evil one. From God's standpoint, there are only two groups of people. Only two groups. Only two categories. It's not Republican and Democrat. It's not black and white. It's not slave and free, male and female. In reality, it's children of God or children of Satan. Believers or unbelievers. Christians or anti-Christ. There is no neutrality. There's no straddling the fence. If you're not a Christian today, you are under the influence of Satan. You belong to the evil world system. Believers belong to God. Unbelievers belong to the evil system of the world and therefore lie in the power of the evil one. The Greek text here literally says this, the whole world lies in the evil or the evil one. That is to say they are under His power, under His influence, under His deception, His dominion. They're His children. They're in His kingdom. And they therefore are dominated by the very evil that characterizes Satan who is their father. We just read in Ephesians 2, unbelievers are referred to as the sons of disobedience. Satan is the father of disobedience and unbelievers are the sons of disobedience. They possess his nature and therefore they reflect his character. So Satan then is seen as the head of a system of evil that exists within the world. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul refers to him as the God of this world. That is to say, he is the one the world runs after. He is the false God under whose dominion and deception the world exists. He is the one that influences ungodly, unbelieving people. Whether they know it or not, right? It's not that we're saying that all unbelievers have a shrine in their closet at home with a picture of Satan on it. They don't even understand it. They don't even get it. That if they're outside of Christ, it's not like they can be their own life. They want to be autonomous. They want to be the Lord of their own life. But in reality, every person is either a slave to God or a slave to Satan. 
The question is, which one are you? Which one are you? One of those masters is not like the other, is it? What does Jesus say? My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus, as our master, gives his life for us. Satan, as a master, wants your life. Satan wants to be God himself. Satan wants to rule. So choose wisely. We just read in Ephesians 2 too. There, there, Satan's called the prince of the power of the air. He's the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. According to 2 Timothy 2.26, unbelievers are held captive by him to do his will. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 says, He deceives the whole world. He deceives the whole world. All unbelievers are under his deception, his dominion, his power. They follow Him and they will one day be damned with Him to the lake of fire. They share a similar fate. You know, you wonder why all of the world's ideologies and political systems and and politicians, why are they always so corrupt? It's because they belong to Satan. The LGBTQ movement, gender fluidity, homosexuality, abortion... All of those things are an example of satanic deception. Satanic influence. You see, friends, do not get your worldview from the world. Do not get your understanding of creation and history and God and salvation from the world because it's always the repackaged lies of Satan over and over again. purveying of satanic deception. As believers, we are to be filled with biblical truth, not worldly lies. Because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Unbelievers then belong to Satan. But John's point here is that as believers, we do not. We do not. We've been liberated from His dominion. Rescued from His power. We're no longer slaves to sin and the devil. We are slaves to God in righteousness. We have been saved from His power. You remember back in chapter 3, verse 8, John said, for this purpose the Son of God came, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came, one of the reasons He came, was to destroy the works of the devil in the lives of His people. Not merely to take away the penalty of sin, but the power of sin to liberate us from the dominion of the devil so that our lives are no longer dominated by his wickedness. Paul made a similar statement in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, where he said that Jesus Christ gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age. We have been rescued, delivered from this corrupt generation, from this evil world system and even delivered from the damning fate that will soon come upon it. We're delivered out of Satan's kingdom. Colossians 1.13 puts it this way, For He rescued us from the domain of darkness, that's Satan's kingdom, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, that's God's kingdom, where Christ is King. We are rescued out of Satan's kingdom and are now citizens of the kingdom of righteousness. Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. 
That's our home. This world is not our home, at least not yet. Not yet. It's important we do make that caveat there because one day the world will be our home, won't it? When it's redeemed, when heaven comes to earth and we reign with Christ in the new earth. But for now, in this current condition, in this, with this corrupt system dominating the earth, this world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. And since that's the case, since our citizenship is in heaven, since Jesus says you've been chosen out of the world, you don't belong to the world, therefore we should live lives that reflect that reality. Right? Our life should reflect the reality of the inner transformation that's taking place. We should not live like the world. If you look like the world, live like the world, love the world, what did John say back in chapter 2? If anyone loves the world, what? The love of the Father is not in him. If you love the world, you don't love God. If you love the world, you're going to be damned with the world. So we should examine ourselves this morning. Is your life marked by worldliness or godliness? Are you being conformed to the world or Christ? What dominates and characterizes your life? What part of your life is becoming more worldly than it should? We should examine our hearts, ask these heart-probing questions, and seek to be consecrated to God and live for another kingdom. Because we have been delivered from Satan's dominion. And because of all of this, because we're no longer part of Satan's kingdom, we no longer lie under His power and His influence. God protects us. And so you can be certain then that you belong to God, that you belong to another kingdom, that you are His. So absolute number four is God's family. We can know that we belong to God. But there's one more for us here. One more, and then we'll let 1 John go. One more ounce of truth for us to squeeze out of this wonderful letter. Number five, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. We can know that Christ is the true God. We see that in the final two verses. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come, and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. John says, we know that the Son of God has come. We know that. We know that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the essential Son of God has come into the world, into the flesh, He came as a man via the incarnation and virgin birth. He has come. And we know that. And this is the very thing, by the way, that the heretics denied. It seems like a basic elementary truth to us. None of us would ever deny the fact that the Son of God has come. But as you know from our study of 1 John, this was the very point of contention with the false teachers. They denied the historicity of the coming of Christ. That's why John, all throughout the letter, deals with that issue. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he said, By this you know the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. The false teachers, the Gnostic heretics, the Antichrist denied that Jesus came in the flesh. We know what they believe. They were docetists. They believe that Jesus appeared as a man. He seemed to be a man from the Greek word dokine, like a phantom. And He wasn't really a man. He didn't really come. He wasn't God either. He was just one of many lesser gods that have come from God. And so John deals with that all throughout the letter. That's why he opened the letter in the very first four verses by highlighting the historical reality of the Incarnation. That which we've seen, that which we've heard, that which we've touched, concerning the Word of Life which was manifested to us. The eternal Word of Life, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, really became a human being. He was manifested to us. The Son of God has come. And what was one of the purposes for which He came? What was one of the purposes of the Incarnation? We know the primary purpose was to redeem sinners. To die on the cross and bear the sins of God's elect and save them from future judgment. We understand that. But there is another purpose of the Incarnation. There is another result of His coming. And John emphasizes that here in verse 20. Look at verse 20 again. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. One of the reasons for which Christ came into the world was to give us understanding. Understanding of what in particular? The next line of verse 20 answers that. So that we may know Him who is true. The Son of God came, gave us understanding, so that we might know Him who is true. So that we might know the true God. Christ gives us understanding of the true God. You see, the true God is most gloriously and completely and clearly manifested in the Incarnation. That is to say that Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is the revelation of God. And He can be that because He is the very manifestation and incarnation of God. Hebrews 1 puts it this way, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. Who in the world can be an exact replica of God except for God Himself? And that's the answer. Jesus is God. And therefore, as God incarnate, as God in the flesh... He is the revelation of God. That's why all throughout Scripture, in John 1.1, 1 John 1.1, Revelation 19.13, Jesus is referred to as the what? The Word of God. The Word of God. Why is He called that? Because the Word of God is the means of God's self-revelation. God reveals Himself through His Word. And Jesus then, as the essential Word of God, is the one who reveals God to man. He is the one that reveals God. In John chapter 1, verse 18, 
Jesus, or John, spoke of Jesus in this way. It says, No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, that's the Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him, or exegeted Him, explained Him. Jesus is the one who explains the Father. No one has ever seen God in His full, invisible, immaterial essence. No one has ever seen the Father, Jesus says in John 6. Who did they see when they saw God in the Old Testament? Who do men see throughout history when they see God? They see Christ. They see Christ. It is the role of the Son within the Trinity to reveal God to man. He is the Word of God. He did that in the Old Testament, I've told you before, as the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. You encounter this character in the Old Testament and he claims to be from God and yet claims to be God. That is Jesus. And of course, he did it in the New Testament via the incarnation as the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's why in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul refers to him as the image of the invisible God. The invisible God is made visible in Christ. The invisible God is made visible in Christ, in the incarnation. He is the representation and manifestation of God. He is God incarnate, we say. And we know Scripture is filled with this reality. In John chapter 14, verse 9, what did Jesus tell Philip? He who has seen me is what? Seen the Father. Seen the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. Not because Jesus is the Father, that by the way is an erroneous view of God, but because Jesus is one with the Father in nature, distinct from Him in person, one with Him in nature, and therefore to see Him is to see the Father, because they are both God together. And there's not two gods, there's one God. Two persons, add that the Holy Spirit is the third person, three persons who fully possess the one divine essence and thus constitute the one true triune God. And therefore, to see Jesus is to see the Father. All that is true of Jesus is true of the Father, essentially, in terms of His attributes and His perfections and His glory. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus said, No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. No one naturally knows God. The only way to know God the Father is to know God the Son. And the only way to know the Son is that the Son sovereignly chooses to reveal Himself to you. Jesus is the one who reveals God. You remember Peter's confession, don't you? Matthew 16, in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response is humbling for Peter. It says, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God is the one who must reveal the truth about Christ to us. He must open our eyes to see the truth. And in coming to know and see the truth about Christ, we come to see and understand and know the truth about the Father, about God about Him who is true. 
So we understand. We know Him who is true. But John makes an even more fascinating statement in the next phrase of verse 20. Not only do we know Him who is true, but then John adds, and we are in Him who is true. That's amazing. It's one thing, a miraculous thing, to say that you actually know the true God. It's an even more glorious thing to say that you are in Him. We are in Him who is true. That is to say, we are in the true God. We are in union with Him. In fellowship with Him. In a saving relationship with Him. In communion with God. And how? How are we in communion with the true God? John adds, in His Son, Jesus Christ. We are in the true God by being in union with Christ. By virtue of our union with the Son, we are in union with the Father. I don't even fully understand that, do you? I don't even fully grasp what it means to be in God. In Christ. It's two of the most glorious words in the Bible. In Christ. In Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. He blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Him. This is the source of your salvation. In Him. In Him. We are in a saving relationship and union with the triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're in Him and He is in us. In John 14.23, Jesus said this, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My word, and My Father will love him. And we, notice the plurality, we will come to Him and make our abode with Him. We, both the Father and the Son, and by logical deduction, the Holy Spirit at salvation, come to live within us. To dwell within us. We are indwelt by the Trinity. Does that sound like a great salvation to you? We are indwelt by the Trinity. John has already said that we abide in Him. He said it back in chapter 3, verse 24, we know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Back in chapter 1, He said we have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are in a fellowship with the triune God. He's in us. We are in Him. Staggering. So by virtue of being in Christ, we are in God. But why? Why does union with Christ equal union with the Father? The final sentence in verse 20 answers that question. John says, This is the true God and eternal life. This is the true God and eternal life. The question here is, who does this refer to? Who is the true God and eternal life? On the surface, it seems like one of the clearest statements in the Bible that Jesus is God. Notice the order of the sentence. The very end of the last sentence, in His Son Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Sounds clear, doesn't it? Sounds like a pretty unequivocal statement. 
However, those who seek to deny the deity of Christ, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, they say that this is not talking about the Son, it's talking about the Father. The Father is the true God, not the Son. The problem with that interpretation is that grammatically it doesn't make sense. Grammatically, it doesn't make sense. First of all, John has already referred to the Father as the true God twice in verse 20. To do it a third time would be redundant. It would be unnecessarily repetitive. And, not to mention the fact that the closest antecedent to this, that this goes back to, is His Son, Jesus Christ. John is essentially saying this. His Son... Jesus Christ is the true God in eternal life. That's what John is saying. That's consistent with what John has already been saying. All throughout 1 John, all throughout the Gospel of John, John has constantly emphasized the deity of Christ. He's telling us why our union with the Son brings us into a union with the Father. Because He is one with the Father. Because He is Himself the true God. He is the true God as opposed to false gods, fictitious gods. You see, there are only two categories of gods, only two categories, true and false. True and false. And there's only one true God. So therefore, all other gods are what? False gods. Fake gods. And John... 17.3, Jesus speaking to the Father said, This is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. According to Jesus, the Father is the only true God. And since we know the Son is one with the Father, He is included in that category of the only true God. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, Paul said, There is no God but one. There is no God but one. And then he says idols are nothing. There's no God but one. In Isaiah 43.10, God Himself says this, Before Me there was no God formed, and there will be none after Me. There's not even a created God before or after Yahweh. He's the only God. Or as Yahweh Himself puts it in Isaiah 45.5, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. You think he could have been any clearer than that? Polytheists, that's the belief in many gods. Henotheists, the belief that there are many gods, but one supreme God. All of those are foolish worldviews. The only biblical worldview is monotheism. There's one God, and it's not Unitarianism, it's Trinitarianism, because God is not one person, He's three persons. That is the biblical perspective on God. So there's one God, Yahweh, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All other gods are false gods. So cultists will have to take their pick. Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus is a God. Well, which one? A true God or a false God? Since there's only one true God, He's either Yahweh or He's a false God. There's your dilemma. There's one God. All other gods are idols, as verse 21 calls them. They are, as Galatians 4.8 puts it, no gods at all. They are by nature 
no gods. The idols of the nations are vanities, but Jesus is the true God. By the way, he's called that all throughout the New Testament, isn't he? John chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus appears to Thomas, doubting Thomas, shows him his hands and the scar in the side, and Thomas, in wonder, exclaims, My Lord and my God. He knew exactly who Jesus was. And Jesus blessed him for his confession. In Romans chapter 9, verse 5, Paul says that Jesus is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. God over all. Titus 2.13, Paul, again, speaking of Christ and the second coming, he says that we are waiting for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. 2 Peter 1.1, same thing. Peter says, of the, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's pretty clear, isn't it? There's only one true God and Jesus must be that God. And the fact that he's referring to Jesus here in verse 20 becomes even more clear because of the second title that John ascribes to him. Not only is he the true God, but he's also the eternal life, John says. The eternal life. We know back in verses 1 through 4, John very clearly applied that title to Jesus. Verse 3 says, he speaks of the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Who's that? Who's the eternal life that was with the Father and manifested to us? We know who that is. It's Jesus. It's the Son. It's speaking of the Incarnation. Jesus is the eternal life. He is the one who has life in Himself from all of eternity. He is the one who is the source of all life, physical, spiritual, and eternal. As the true God, all life is in Him. So Jesus then is the true God and eternal life. This means that the Gnostics were wrong. Jesus was not merely one of many lesser deities coming from God. This means that the followers of Serenthus were wrong. Jesus was not merely a man empowered by the Christ Spirit as they said. This means the Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong. Jesus is not Michael the Archangel. This means the Mormons are wrong. Jesus is not one of many gods. He's not the spirit brother of Satan as they assert. This means the Muslims are wrong. Jesus is not a prophet second to Muhammad. Jesus is the creator of Muhammad. Jesus is the maker of the angel. Jesus is the one true God. In verse 21, John then closes the letter with a statement of application. A final exhortation. A concluding warning. Verse 21. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Once again, he uses that term of endearment, little children. My little flock, my spiritual children whom I love. Guard yourselves from idols. From idols. What's an idol? The word idolon, the Greek word, refers to an image used in worship. And therefore, it refers then to a false god. 
false god. We are to guard ourselves from idols, from fictitious objects of worship, false gods. The word guard here means to protect, to guard, to keep away. It has the idea of being on the lookout. John is saying, look out for idols. Stay away, keep away from false gods. Have nothing to do with false gods. Don't worship them. Or as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 10.14, flee from idolatry. Run away from all forms of idolatry. There are many forms of idolatry, but the particular form John has in mind here is that of the Gnostic heretics and their false Jesus, their false God, their false gospel, their false religion. Essentially, what John is saying here is this. Any God that is not Jesus Christ is no God. Any God that is not Jesus Christ is no God. It is an idol. It's a false God. There's one God. He's revealed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Worship that God alone. And when the cults come knocking on your door selling their idolatry, run away. Have nothing to do with it. Flee it. John Calvin said of this passage, By true God, he does not mean one who tells the truth, but him who is really God. And he so calls him to distinguish him from all idols. And then Calvin adds this, The meaning is that when we have Christ, we enjoy the true and eternal God, for nowhere else is He to be sought. That's exactly right. Friends, you don't need to look for God anywhere else but in Christ. There He's found. He brings us to God. And any God that isn't Christ is no God. Idolatry is a heinous sin, by the way. We might talk more about this in the future. It's a topic I wanted to cover in more depth, but don't have the time to do so. But it is to worship the creature rather than the Creator. It is to love the gift more than the giver. It is to ascribe to others what exclusively belongs to God. It is to worship a false god that is no god. And by the way, there's, there's other forms of idolatry more than just the forms we think of in the Bible, bowing down to images and statues. We understand the idolatry of the Roman Catholic system and and so on. But there's a more subtle and dangerous form of idolatry that exists. A seemingly less religious one. You see, anything you love more than God is your God. Anything you love more than God is your God. What you love the most is your object of worship. So what is it then that gets you up in the morning? What's the first thing that comes into your mind? What is it that consumes your heart? Is it Christ? Or is it an idol? We can make fame, fortune, money, drugs, entertainment. All of these things can become idols for us. False gods. For me, growing up, it was video games and sports and football. It's At the end of the day, it's self. Calvin said the human heart's an idol factory. It spits out idol after idol after idol. And friends, the idol that must be rooted out ultimately is the idol of self. We worship self. 
So we must guard ourselves from any God that is not Christ. The God of Gnosticism was an idol. The God of the Jehovah's Witnesses is an idol. The God of Mormonism is an idol. The gods of Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam are idols. False gods. There's one true God. He's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and He alone must be the supreme object of our devotion and affection and worship. We must keep ourselves from all substitutes. All fictitious gods. As we come to a close here, Jesus, John, I'm sorry, he issues a similar warning in his second letter. Go to 2 John for a moment. 2 John. And if your Bible's like mine, you don't even have to turn the page. You just need to look to the other page. 2 John, and I want to read verses 7 through 9. Starting in verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world... Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, same false teachers here, this is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. It's a package deal. If you have Christ, you have God. If you do not have Christ, you do not have God, no matter what God you think you have. To have God is to have both the Father and the Son. So brothers and sisters, may we hold fast to Him. May we continue in Him. May we keep ourselves from all idols and may we seek to find God in Christ and in Christ alone. Now, some of your translations may end with the word Amen, the Greek word Amen. It means so be it, let it be, yes. It's a word of agreement. And even though it's not found in many of the more reliable manuscripts, and so it's not in my translation, it's certainly a fitting way to end, isn't it? We say to all that John has written, Amen. We say to what John has just written, Amen. So be it. Let it be. A very fitting way to end the letter and our study of First John. So to recap then, five Christian absolutes. Eternal life, answered prayer, eternal security, God's family, Jesus Christ. We can know that we are saved. We can know that God hears and answers us. We can know that God keeps us. We can know that we belong to Him. And we can know that Jesus Christ is the true God. To all of which we say, Amen. Amen. What a study. I hope you've found it to be as enriching as I have as we've worked our way through this glorious book. But now let us go to our God and let's say the Amen together. Father, we thank You for such glorious truth. What a glorious, glorious letter we've studied and 11 months of digging deep into the truth of 1 John. And now we're already excited for what You have next for us in Your Word. But Lord, we're so grateful that we know the truth. People in the world are stumbling in the darkness, espousing foolishness and absurdity and lies and myths. And here we are, simple people who are not wise by the world's standards, not noble, not mighty, just little dust balls here today and gone tomorrow. 
And yet we, by grace, possess absolute truth. May we hold fast to this truth. May we fight for the truth. And may You use us to propagate that truth in the world. For Your glory we pray. Amen.